It was very strange. Every day, every week, you wake up, you don't know, is there school today? Are bombs or rockets going to fall? Are they gonna shut it down? Once you leave where you grew up to go elsewhere, when you go back home, home is not the home you left. I like to say sometimes that what I do is I specialize in scandal. Candid Qatar, a podcast that focuses on interesting conversations with inspirational people around Qatar. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode for Candid Qatar. My name is Natasha and these are my co-hosts, Hind. Hi. And Thani. Hello. Our special guest is Dean Marwan Kredi, our Dean at Northwestern University in Qatar. Dean Kredi recently joined us as he took his new position on the 1st of July. Before this, he was an Associate Dean for Administration and a Communication Professor at the University of Pennsylvania, where he was also the founder of the Center of Advanced Research in Global Communication. Dean Marwan has decades of experience as an educator, has written over 130 essays, and has published 13 books. So, please welcome Dean Marwan. It's such a pleasure to have you on our show. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you for inviting me. Dean Marwan, um, first of all, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, you know, we're very lucky that we are on Zoom. Ideally, we would be sitting uh, in a studio. Uh, we would be having like a more human um, experience, but we're lucky that we can do this. Um, I'm, I'm doing as well as one can do um, in the middle of a pandemic when nothing is normal. Where are you right now? Are you at your home or in the office? I am now in my home office. Uh, I was very fortunate that um, NUQ set up a home office for me. And so I can close the door and not worry about somebody barging in or a noise coming from the outside. And I have a very nice view. So let's get straight into your story. Could you tell us more about your background and childhood? I was born in Lebanon, uh, right before um, the war started, so in the early 70s. I um, grew up in Lebanon during the war, which is uh, both difficult, but also allows you to see things and discover things. I went um, to university in Lebanon, um, radio, television, and film. I wanted to make movies. I wanted to write screenplays. Um, I fell in love with radio drama, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and then I felt, you know, the only way to sort of do all these things is to be a teacher, to be a professor. And so I, I went to the U.S. Um, I went to Ohio University for a master's that was initially supposed to be a master in, in script writing. And then I met theory, which I find extremely practical because it allows me to understand all kinds of things around me. And I switched. I didn't continue sort of the more artistic, creative path and moved to the scholarly path. I don't mean to suggest that they're separate, that they're different, but back then they were. And then I got my PhD, uh, became a professor, spent five years in North Dakota, which is the state right in the middle of the US on the border with Canada, uh, where the average temperature in the winter is colder than um, the average temperature of Alaska. And then I moved from North Dakota to Washington, D.C. for another job. That was as a professor of international relations at American University. And then I moved to Penn, 
And then I moved to um, NUQ, and I'm in Doha now. Wow, your story really begins with a blast. Um, what was it like studying during the Lebanese Civil War? It was very strange um, in the sense that the exception becomes the rule, instability becomes the default mode. Every day, every week, um, you wake up, you don't know, is there school today? Are bombs or rockets going to fall? Are they gonna shut it down? And so there was, a, so you learn to deal with crisis and instability as fundamental to your daily routine, right? So the absence of routine becomes your routine. What that does to you, of course, it's, it's stressful, but it makes you very nimble. It makes you very flexible. It makes you sort of able to shift from one thing to the other, from one way of thinking, from you know, doing things to another. Um, in terms of going to university, um, I went to Notre Dame University um, in Lebanon. And when I started there, we were still using something you probably have never carried in your life or let alone seen, which is the three quarter inch camera which is a pneumatic tape. The camera itself was so heavy that I was one of the only people in the department who could put it on, on their shoulder, because I'm a big guy, uh, for three, four, five hours. And so as a result, I was recruited into all the productions. I was uh, in downtown Beirut one day shooting this or that. I was uh, following people. I could just, it was an enormous camera. I, I, I believe it was 24, 25 kilos. Um, and so technology was much more physical, which was, was much more object-like than it is today, right? And what was interesting, of course, a war is not only battles and bombs. A war is a lot of social upheaval. So you get a lot of marches and demonstrations and protests on the streets. And it, these are much more exciting to shoot on video than anything else, right? I remember um, at some point, the university studio acquired the new camera, which was a V8. You know, this is when like it shrunk in half. Um, it was the new Sony V8. And the first time we took it out for a ride was to shoot uh, protesters burning tire. And, you know, I mean, I've, now I write about fire, but fire is spectacular on screen, right? So, so that's what it means to be, uh, to be in a war. In, in many ways, it's scary. I'm not, I'm not trying to romanticize it, but you live life more fully. Because you sort of go about your life knowing, without really thinking about it, but you act as if this could be your last day, this could be your last week, so you want to live it fully. And I think that's, um, that's a strange thing to go through when you're, you know, 15 and 17 and 18 and 20. How did you get interested in communications and why did you pick that as your university major? Two things. Um, if there were two constants in my life, I would say the first one was, has been an abiding love of writing ever since I could write. I just love to write. And I thought that's why I was interested in screenwriting at the beginning, right? Um, but then I also discovered a love for photography. That's before college. I was a cinema fanatic. I used to watch Cine Club. I used to spend hours watching. That's war too, right? You're stuck indoors. And so whenever there is electrical power, you're watching like the French New Wave. You watch four movies in a row because you're stuck indoors for weeks at a time. Um, and so I fell in love with all these things, right? Cinema, writing, uh, taking pictures. What, what combines them? Communication, right? What, back then it was radio, TV, film or communication arts. So that's, that's why I did it. And the reason I mentioned sound, the other thing you do during a war, when there is electrical power, you watch movies, you watch TV. When you don't have electrical power, you grab a transistor radio with batteries and you listen to the radio. 
And so I had a lot of late, long nights listening to the radio. And so when I got into college, suddenly I discovered, oh my God, this could be, I can take courses in this, right? And I'll never forget, I had an advanced radio drama course where I, um, I produced, I wrote and produced a, a, a radio feature drama, a one hour about the life of Che Guevara. You know, the Bolivian rebel who joined the Cuban revolution was sort of a leftist fighter, a guerrilla fighter all over the world. And what I loved the most was blending sound effects with my narrative. This was like a year or two before CDs. We're talking early 90s, right? So sound effects were these BBC LPs. I know we had like a series of 10 of them that could, you know, you had the screeching sound. You had the motorcycle sound, which I used a lot. If you've watched Motorcycle Diaries, you know, Che Guevara did this sort of cross America bike ride. So basically, I, I, most of these courses, I never felt it's something I had to do for a grade or for an assignment. I just felt it was like I was playing. You said earlier that there was a distinction between creative and scholarly work, and you clearly were very interested in creative work. So how did you decide to get into the scholarly world and pursue a PhD? I wanted to teach. I felt that... Um, I am very interested in what old-fashioned scholars call the life of the mind. I'm very interested in ideas. I find ideas strangely um, concrete. I don't, I don't find ideas abstract. I find ideas very concrete because ideas help me understand the world. When I think about ideas and I find myself saying, oh, this is why this works this way. You know, it just, it's, it puts, you hover above the world. And so you see it in a different light when you process it through ideas. So that's, that's reason number one. Reason number two is because I really, I discovered that I really like to teach. When I became an advanced student, I, I became sort of a, an unofficial studio assistant, and I loved that. And so I felt, okay, you know, moving, getting a PhD means I could teach. Of course, I could still write. And one of these days, I'll go back to, you know, making a documentary or producing radio drama or something like that. Did you get into any creative work after? Uh, rarely. So the, the creative work I did was I, I, I did an advertising campaign in Lebanon. I was the model when uh, my, my third year in college, um, I did um, an advertising campaign of four spots over a, a year and a half period for diet products, which was a revelation to me. You know, I was this big guy. I had very long curly hair. I looked like, like you know, the Harlem Globetrotters, the, the basketball players. And so I, I had like a very recognizable head. And suddenly you would walk on the street and everybody knows you and points at you. And that was very strange to me. And so I discovered sort of the other side of media. And I discovered, you know, I, I, like, I like to write about it rather than be in it. Um, and so that's, that's really the only thing that is actual media industry work. So rather than being in it, did you ever write your own screenplay? No, not a full screenplay. I wrote the, uh, I wrote the script for the Che Guevara radio drama. I also wrote the script for a weird hybrid documentary slash feature with some drama that I called The Post-War Dream. Um, um, uh, we went in and shot in downtown Beirut in 91 as Beirut was opening up and it was divided in half during the war. So we walked into places that were, you know, uh, uh, there was a church and a mosque door to door that were eaten up by vegetation. 
because nobody had stepped foot there for 15, 18 years. And so we went in and shot. And so, so I wrote that. And then I had to write a one-act play to graduate. I forgot about it. I, I, I don't even have a copy of it because, again, that was, that was before everybody had a computer. Two years later, I started using a computer, but, but this was just typed on a, on a typewriter. And as a cinema fanatic, what's your favorite movie? Look, I mean, I, I, I like a lot of movies for different reasons, but um, for the longest time, I loved movies like Dead Poets Society. I don't know if you've seen it. That uh, marked me tremendously just because it's, you know, it's the story of a teacher in a sort of posh private college who's an alum of that school and used to be the head of a secret society of young men because it wasn't only like a men's college. They would meet at night in a cave and, and recite poetry, right? And so the, the, the students he's teaching um, reenact that. And I just found that, you know, it's a romanticism of the life of the mind, of the creative life, of the campus life, of the life of the teacher. There are lots of movies I like, but that will always hold a very special place in my heart. It's the first, it's the first film that I bought. I bought a VHS tape of that Poet Society. It's the very first movie that I bought. What year was it released? Oh, I want to say 90, 91. So I was, you know, 18, 19. And that's the age where you're like, you're marked by stuff like that. Okay, well, I'm 19, so I'm going to go watch it after this. <laughs> Tell me what you think. I believe it's a movie that ages really well, just because even when you watch, I mean, it's set in the 50s, right? So even when, you, when I watched it in the late 80s, early 90s, it was, let me know what you think, uh, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts. I will, I will. Dean? Most of your work is in media, politics, and culture. Yes. So what drove your research interests? Um, you know, I like to say sometimes, in some contexts, only half-jokingly, uh, that what I do is I specialize in scandal. And um, what, what attracts me is, you know, why does an issue become controversial in society? That's something that it fundamentally, answering this kind of question attracts me. The second question is how does something become controversial? And how does the controversy evolve? And of course, anywhere in the world, in particular in the Arab world, popular culture is the stuff that churns controversy seemingly more than anything else, right? Since I was a kid. I mean, today, if you look at, at popular culture, we've seen so much that we've become sort of blasé. But if you go back, so for example, almost 10 years ago now, um, well, it is actually 12 years ago, I published a book about the scandals in the Arab world surrounding reality TV, right? And one of the interesting things about it is I asked myself, why is a show like this controversial, right? So you have the obvious answers, which is, okay, um, we have in some societies it is not acceptable for men and women who are not related to each other uh, to be dancing and touching each other. Okay, fine. Right? But there are deeper and deeper issues. So the more you look into it, the more you discover, of course, once there's controversy, uh, there are people called politicians. And politicians want to take advantage of controversies to advance their own agenda. Right? And sometimes clerics feel a controversy may allow them to attract attention to values that they care about. Right? So everybody starts getting into it. And so a controversy is never just a controversy. A controversy is a map 
to understand the social and political tensions that exist in society. That's what fascinates me about the intersection of that. And what is the recipe? I can tell you almost every time what the recipe is. There's always money because most media are commercially driven. So money is always part of the equation. The sphere of cultural values, social values, religious values, right? This is the ideational sphere that people feel very strongly about. That's always part of the controversy. Um, anywhere in the world, most controversies involving popular culture have sexuality as part of them in one way or the other. It typically involves uh, women's bodies who are shown too much or not shown enough or, you know, it typically, it typically involves that. And it typically involves the media because without the media, there's no publicness and without publicness, there's no scandal, right? So it, it becomes a little boring. And then of course, you know, we had reality TV, then we had music videos, then we had Twitter. Twitter in the Gulf for a while, uh, five, six years ago was extremely controversial. Now we tend to think about it as, okay, you know, this is where bots are, this is where commercials are, but it didn't used to be that way. And so I find this to be a way to understand what is hidden in society because scandals brings the hidden forces to the surface, the hidden struggle to the surface. You're a teacher, a researcher, and an administrator. How do you manage to do all the work you do? The honest answer is I'm still trying to figure it out, which is to say um, I have not written much since June, just because there are more important things I have to attend to. My job now is primarily not that of an author um, um, anymore. Um, and so there's, you know, some learning. I'm beginning to try to like think about writing. I mean, I'm invited to write short pieces. Short pieces are easy, but to write the kind of stuff that I like to write, long pieces has been almost impossible. But here's what I would tell you. I don't believe in the division between leading a university, teaching and writing. Now, to be brutally honest, I won't have time to teach this year. I would like to teach at some point, but we're struggling to find two hours in my schedule per week now. Like anything that comes up, uh, in some cases, we make people wait six weeks or eight weeks to schedule them. And that's horrible, right? But that's, that's the reality. But deep inside, I know that the boundaries are only artificial. You know, to be able to lead a university that's dedicated to students, the first people who deliver the mission to the students are the professors, is the faculty. The staff supports the faculty to deliver that mission. You have to be able to be a teacher. You have to be able to be an author. And ideally within the same fields, to be able to make the decisions, right? Because institutions are really about people. So you have a large group of people uh, that has a common mission. My job is to help everybody do their job to meet that mission. I couldn't do it if I didn't understand what the jobs consist of. Jobs consist of teaching, of learning, of writing. Those are huge chunks of what everybody at NUQ does. You've lived internationally, Lebanon, France, Sweden, the Netherlands, all around the US and now Qatar. Um, what motivated you to travel and what have you learned from these experiences? You know, What's motivating me to travel is, I, I, here's what I think. I think once you make the trip once, you can never go back. Um, I mean, travel in many ways is a state of mind and not physical movement across boundaries. And so once you leave where you grew up to go elsewhere, when you go back home, home is not the home you left, right? It would be unfair to the people you grew up with 
to expect them to be frozen in time while you're evolving. That, that it doesn't work this way. And so I do feel that um, travel is a state of mind. Like once you do it, it's rough. It's rough to change your routine, particularly as you get older. Back in the US, you have your doctor. I had my dentist. Um, I knew exactly how long it was going to take me to get to my dentist. I knew exactly how long they're going to make me wait. All of this I'm rediscovering now. Today I had a dental appointment. I thought it was going to be an hour. It took two hours and a half to get there, to come back. So that's difficult, but that's exactly what makes it exciting, right? Because life is too short. And um, now I, you know, I grew up in Lebanon. I lived in the U.S. Then I went back to Lebanon for a year as a visiting professor. I lived for a year plus in the Netherlands. And now I'm here. And what's so interesting is at some point, the most important thing this teaches you is that the world is not this or that. The world is not black and white. The world is not round or square. The world is a bunch of cousins, right? Cousins that resemble each other in some ways. There's a famous philosopher, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who, who talked about family resemblances. He said, look, if you go to a, a dinner where you have a large family, uh, not everybody would look the same, but you realize that four people in the dinner have the same nose. Um, you have five people who seem to have uh, um, the same voice, right? So that's how I compare cultures and countries now. Not as opposites, but as here's how they're similar, here's how they're different. And here are the aspects in which each country is not comparable to anything else. Do you have a specific dream country you wish to go work or experience their culture in the future? Um, not, not really. I think part of it is... I think I'm old enough to know that it's folly to plan these things. You know, coming to Doha is not something I planned. Um, at some point, um, your life gets to a point where you have certain interests, where some things make your heart beat faster than other things. And an opportunity comes along, you just seize it. You know, I don't, I don't plan it. So to have a, a dream country, no, not really. I mean, um, uh, my wife is from Mexico. I grew up in Lebanon. We're American. My kids were born in Washington, D.C. and grew up in Philadelphia. And now we're in Qatar. And in, in some ways, all of these are home in one way or the other. And so where things take me next, I don't know. Uh, what I can tell you is, you know, I've been to almost every country in Europe. I've been to almost every country in the Americas. Um, I've traveled in Asia quite a bit. But in Africa, I only know North Africa. So that's one thing I really, like, I'm very eager to travel. And uh, with your political views and your um, uh, mentioning of the importance of media in the 21st century, I myself agree with that. And I also took politics classes before, and it, it basically shows how the media is becoming a fourth state in, in uh, managing the powers of the country and how it will lead... Um, you know, lead us into the future, basically, with governmental decisions. So um, I want to ask you that with your international experience, um, do you think that it proves that having effective communication skills, communication background is crucial to go with the 21st century? Look, yes, it is. Uh, but here's the problem, right? I think we went from a world where information was limited but controlled yes to a world where the problem now is not access to information the problem is how do you discriminate between different kinds of information right and so so when we say media 
it's no longer just about conveying information, but it's as importantly about authenticating information. Because what passes for information can be a poison pill. I mean, you hear now, you know, fake news, misinformation, all that. Uh, I was writing about this, uh, you know, in the Arab uprisings, we had a lot of cases where suddenly you have a fictional personality that's invented, right? Either by a government or by a political party, and there's a blog that appears, uh, or there's uh, somebody who's being interviewed as a witness to a massacre. And then you realize three months later, this was fabricated. This was a studio with actors, right? And on the opposite side, you have truly tragic events. The most famous, for example, uh, such um, um, incidents um, is a school shooting in the US, right? Where you have an entire cottage industry that's dedicated to saying this is fake, while it was very real, right? So the problem now is not getting access to information, but figuring out what kind of information is actually information and what is not, because that requires education. That requires literacy in ways. You know, when people ask me, why, why do communication majors need to learn political science and anthropology and literature and all that? Well, because that's how you tune your mind, right? To detect when something is wrong, to detect, to understand somebody's trying to sell you a lie, right? Basically, everything you said requires about, like, uh, in terms of studying the politics that's happening, requires a validation process. Uh, I personally see it as it relates with journalism because of how they share the same values. However, politics is the strategy behind decisions. So thank you for your points. My pleasure. I'm doing the easy part here. Dean, what was it like joining a new organization in a different continent in the middle of a pandemic? Um, it's a bit like swimming in an ocean uh, with a fire on the surface, but I like it this way. I've never liked things easy. When I was leaving Penn, they had a, like a, a goodbye event for me, and one of my former students um, wrote to me this very moving email where she said, this is a huge challenge, because by then the, it was clear the pandemic was there to stay. But one of the things you always convey was that you don't like things the easy way. Uh, here's how I would describe it. It's, it's, it's a huge moment in my life because it allows me to completely displace myself and look at an academic institution uh, with a pair of fresh eyes. That's one. Two, the pandemic here is much easier to deal with than it was for me when I was in Philadelphia because here um, it seems to be under control. Right? So here we get guidance from the Ministry of Public Health that comes to all of us. When I was in, in Pennsylvania, you have the Pennsylvania Health Department, then you have the city of Philadelphia, right? You have the federal. It was much more complicated as a sort of an immediate response uh, to the pandemic. But I think the most important thing, remember when I was talking about cousins, Wittgenstein's sort of family resemblances? I'm very familiar with uh, a university like Northwestern. So there's a certain kind of university in the U.S. Um, and the University of Pennsylvania and Northwestern are cousins in that regard, if not siblings, right? So some of the issues that I see, um, the huge potential that I see, I've dealt with before, but in a different variation. The one thing that makes me tremendously sad is that everything has to happen through a screen. That's really, that's the most difficult challenge. The most difficult challenge is not the pandemic. 
It's how the pandemic has us communicate. Yesterday, I was in, in my office at NUQ from eight to six. I had two in-person meetings. I felt like a new person. It was like one of the busiest day I've had in years. I felt light at the end of the day. I felt happy. I wasn't tired. I wanted to, you know, I usually swim in the morning. I wanted to come back home and swim again or go for a long walk. Why? Because it felt, oh, this is what normal academic life looks like. You're in an office. You meet a couple of people. You send emails. You meet another couple of people. And so this isolation is the most difficult part. And I hope we can very soon shift back to actually seeing each other. What do you see as the future and how do you think we're going to adapt to the challenges of the pandemic? I mean, the future, the future to me is, um, it has a couple of features. Number one, there's always a bright future. I'm an optimist. I feel that crises and challenges cost us, you know, clearly. It's cost, this one is costing us human life. It's costing us a lot of mental health problems. It's costing a lot of people economic heartache because, because they're, they're losing their jobs. But as a university, I think there are huge opportunities, but we do need to adapt. So one of the things that a lot of people hear me talk about all the time is the importance of research. And by research, I don't mean only faculty or graduate students. I mean the undergraduate students. And in many cases, staff can get involved in all kinds of research activities. And again, by research, I don't only mean the peer-reviewed article or the book, right? Uh, research can be done in, in, in different modalities. Uh, doing a documentary is, is research. If you're providing new original knowledge, why is this important? Because at a time when anybody can log in from anywhere to any university, what makes a university distinctive becomes what attracts students to it, what attracts employees to it, and what makes it stand out in a sea of Zoom screens and online offerings. So that's one. Two, I think the future of education is definitely international. And in that sense, I can't hope to be at a better place than NUQ or Doha. So yes, we have a pandemic now, we can't travel, but um, it doesn't take two minutes to figure out that absent the pandemic, where we are situated is an incredible opportunity. I call us an embedded institution because we're embedded in Northwestern, we're embedded in Qatar, we're embedded in the Gulf, in the Arab world, we're at the gateways of Asia and Africa, right? And so this is serious. This is not communication, strategic PR talk only. This is substance. Where we are, who we are, allows us to do things in a very unique way that other universities are trying to do, but because of the kinds of students they have, they can't do it as well, right? And the third part, I think, I'm very skeptical about digital things, right? When people say, oh, the digital is changing everything, I'm like, no, we are humans. We will absorb new technology. We will bend it to our needs. So you have to start with people. Don't tell me technology is changing everything. Technology may change a few things, but we are humans and we bend it. But at the same time, we bend it to our needs. Knowledge is not only produced by killing trees and putting ink on the product of the dead trees, right? And the digital, digital means let us express knowledge and communicate it much more broadly, which is great, much faster, which is not always very good because good ideas need time to mature. Uh, but more accessibly, I think. Even though, you know, we have what we used to call the information gap, then we called it the digital divide. There are access issues all over the world, 
But I think we can agree that it's easier now to access stuff than it used to be 50 years from now to access basic information. I was just going to ask, since you mentioned, um, since it is easier now to access information and we have all this technology, as a student um, in the 90s, when you wanted to pursue or like you were interested in communications, did you face some sort of struggle with your parents? No, I'm very lucky in that regard. You know, in Lebanon, it used to be a cliche that all parents want you to be either a doctor, a lawyer, or, 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 or a dentist, basically. Because, uh, you know, it's the, and, and, and you have a, a certain generation, for example, in the US that believes in this, that, you know, you should become a doctor, and if not, you should marry a doctor, right? Why? Because uh, it gives you professional status, it's a good life, you make good money, and all that. My parents were very different. My parents um, actually encouraged me. They're like, the only way for you to be happy and lead a happy life is to do what you want to do, right? And I believe in that. And, I, and that's how I educate my kids. That's, that's what I tell students, even faculty now. I tell them, look, don't try to do what other people are doing. Try to be the best version of what you want to do, right? Um, I have a brother who's a pianist. He's a concert pianist and he's a piano teacher, you know, not very typical. And then I have a brother who, you know, is an engineer, but all three of us are professors. All three of us ended up getting PhDs and teaching. But um, no, I did not face any resistance. And I was very, very lucky because I have some friends who were told, you cannot do this, you have to do that. And they're not very happy people, I can tell you that. Dean Marwan. Thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us today. Your experiences and insights have been very interesting and we're very glad to talk to you. No, I, I just want to thank you. I mean, I enjoy this a lot. It made me sort of relive the excitement of, of being a student, putting together a production. Uh, I, it's lovely. And, and I want to thank Spencer for you know teaching this course. I want to thank you for, for talking to me. So thank you. To our listeners at home, thank you so much for tuning in and be sure to check out our other episodes.